So we're looking at today, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Great section of Scripture. We're like in one of those sections of Scripture that are just awesome. And we're going to learn about today knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. And we're going to see today, verse 8 tells us, nothing compares to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And so what I'm going to try to help you with from the Scripture today is give you five principles that will help you in your knowledge of Christ. You know, that's true Christianity is all about, by the way. True Christianity is just not knowing about Christ. It's knowing Christ. True Christianity is bridging the gap between just knowing details about the life of Christ to really experientially, intimately knowing Christ. True Christianity, that's what it is. CIU, that Bible college right here in Columbia, is a great model. It characterized true Christianity. It says this, our model as a Bible college is this, is to know him and to make him known. That's true Christianity. You want to know Christ, and you want to make him known. That was about 40 years ago. I, uh, 1978, February, I, 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 I crossed the chasm between knowing details about Christ so coming over here to really knowing Christ. I came to Christ and I got, I got saved and I came in this personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And 40 years later, I could say, along with the Apostle Paul in verse 8, nothing compares to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And everything else in life is rubbish compared to gaining Christ. You know, I've had some opportunities the last, you know, 50-some years of my life to do some fun things. I've had some fun with, with my kids. We have all four kids now are married and working. Oh, praise the Lord. They're off, off, the, off the payroll. And they're all working and they're doing well. But all four weddings were highlights for Heidi and I. Just, oh my, oh my gosh, the, the weddings were amazing. And it just a blast. But you know what? Even compared to the fun we had with our kids in their wedding days and everything else, nothing compares to the value of knowing Christ. The meaning and purpose and joy that I find in my relationship with Christ, even highlights like weddings with my kids don't compare it to the knowledge of knowing Christ. You know, I've had some opportunities. Heidi and I, our 25th wedding anniversary, we got a, on a bus in Europe, took a bus tour of like five or six nations and learned all this stuff about Germany and Holland where my ancestors are from. And, you know, we went to Switzerland and went up to the Alps. And it was just amazing for our 25th wedding anniversary. 25th wedding anniversary. And it was one of our greatest trips. But even compared to that, nothing compares to the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing brings me more joy. Nothing brings me more happiness. Nothing brings me more purpose in my life than knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's what life is all about. By the way, that's what we were created for. Revelation 4.11 says we were created. Uh, one version says for his good pleasure, for, for, for the pleasure of Christ. And the reason why Christ created us in the first place and made us human beings is so that we would have a relationship with him and we would know him and he would know us. Nothing compares to the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So we're going to look at the scripture this morning from one of the guys that teaches us about knowing Christ better than anybody in the scriptures, I think, and that's the Apostle Paul. And look what he has to say. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. Let's just read it and soak in the scripture a little bit and reading through it. And then we'll glean from the scripture some principles of how we can better know Christ. Philippians chapter 3 verse 1. If you're there, say amen. Okay, here we go. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. 
Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, notice, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind that put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But notice what he says. Whatever things were gained to me, these things I counted lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but, notice, rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And I love these last two verses. That I may know him, there it is, I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order, or that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Now let's go back to the top, and we're going to glean some principles from the Apostle Paul's pen and the inspired word of God and how we could better know Christ. Go back to the top. Notice what he says. First word. Finally, interesting, typical preacher, Paul, he says finally, and then he goes on for two whole more chapters. <laughs> we have a tendency to do that, don't we? Finally, this is my closing point. And then Pastor John goes on for another 20 minutes. Hey, when I do that next time, I'm in good company. Paul did it too. He'll do it again in chapter 4. So finally, then he goes on for a whole other chapter. But he goes, finally, what does he say? He says, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, rejoice in the Lord. Is he saying rejoice in your circumstances? No. Because to be honest with you, sometimes we can't rejoice in our circumstances. Sometimes our circumstances in life are tough. Sometimes there's trials that are tough to rejoice in. I mean, when I get a flat tire on the side of the road, I'm not saying praise the Lord for the flat tire. I'm saying, please, someone stop and help me. It's, you can't rejoice always in our circumstances. When we're sick, we're hurting, we got a flu or something, we can't rejoice in the flu, but we can always rejoice in the Lord. Well, under these circumstances, I can't rejoice. Well, what are you doing under the circumstances? Get above them by get, getting the focus off the circumstance and onto the Lord. And Paul was a great example of that to the Philippians. When he was in Philippi for the first time, he was falsely accused, thrown in prison, beaten with rods, and then put in stocks in the dungeon of that prison. And it was about midnight, and Paul started with Silas rejoicing in the Lord. He started, it says in Acts chapter 16, he was singing praise, hymns of praise to his God about midnight. That's what he did. He, when, when circumstances hit hard, Paul got his focus off the circumstances, and he rejoiced in the Lord. And he tells us in the next chapter, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord when life is good. Is that what he says? Rejoice in the Lord what? Always. And then he reiterates, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice. Now this is the first principle in our knowing Christ that's very important. And that is you need to learn to rejoice in the Lord always. And not just when circumstances are good. You know why? Because if your joy is dependent on your circumstances, it'll drive you away from Christ rather than to Christ. If you're looking to your circumstances to bring happiness in your life, rather than being in the Lord and looking to Jesus and your relationship and your knowledge of Christ to bring joy into your life, then you're, you're in trouble. 
And what will happen is if your, circumstance, if your happiness is dependent on your circumstances, what it's going to do, it's going to drive you away from Christ rather than towards Christ. But when our perspective is James 1, 2 to 4, when it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. See that? The Chinese Christians in the underground church, when they're being persecuted, they have this, they have this saying in the underground church in China, may, may these trials be like nails that drive us further into our knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a good saying. Allow those circumstances in life not to drive you away from Christ, but drive you to Christ. Draw closer to Christ in your circumstances when they're tough and learn to rejoice in the Lord always. Because there's always something to rejoice in the Lord. When the circumstances are tough, you get your eyes off the circumstances on Jesus. You can rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the book of life if you're a Christian. You can rejoice in the fact that the greatest need in your life is met if you're a Christian and that your sins are forgiven. You can rejoice in the fact that you're going to spend the rest of eternity in a place where there's streets of gold and there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death, no more sin. You can rejoice in the fact that you're a Adopted, adopted son or daughter of God. You're a, king of the, a kid of the king. You're adopted into his family. You can rejoice in the fact that you have the Holy Spirit to give you the power you need to endure anything that you suffer with. You can rejoice in these things. I, I, I posted a quote on Facebook and Twitter this week that I'm going to reiterate in this message from one of my heroes, and that's Johnny Erickson Tato, who's, been, who's, by the way, been a quadriplegic for the last 50-plus years. She hasn't moved from her neck down for 50-plus years. Amazing woman of God that knows Christ and walks with Christ closely. And she was talking about heaven, and she made, had this quote, great quote. She said, when she gets to heaven, she says, the first thing I plan to do when she gets to heaven on resurrected legs is drop on grateful, glorified knees. That's a woman that knows Christ. That's a woman that draws close to Christ, even in the state of 50 years of being quadriplegic, and that's a woman that walks with God. And she's allowed the trials that she's faced to drive her closer in a relationship with Christ because she rejoices in the Lord always. To the point she says, when I finally get my legs back and I get to heaven, I'm going to drop on my knees and give glory to the God that loves me so much. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That will help you in your walk with God. As you look to Christ and rejoice in Christ in the midst of the trials that you face. Because Jesus said, in this world, there will be trouble. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. So finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Here's what he's doing now. He's saying, I'm going to repeat something in these next verse or two. But hey, this is a safeguard to you. I'm repeating it because you need to have this repeated in your life. And Paul oftentimes in his epistles would repeat things he's already taught them because he knew that repetition is one of the greatest forms of teaching. And by the way, I don't know if you've been around Calvary Chapel long, but you'll notice Pastor John does that too. I'll repeat a lot of the same foundational scriptures over and over again because I want you to have that as a part of your DNA as a Christian. I want scriptures like Philippians 4.13 repeated over and over again in your life that you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. I want scripture like Romans 8, 28, that I say over and over again, God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Or Romans chapter 8 that says, says this, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Or scriptures like Jeremiah 29, 11, that I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. 
Or my life first, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. I'm going to be repeating those scriptures just as Paul repeated things to the people he was discipling because you know what? I don't want you just to have it up here. I want you to have it here. I want you to so embedded in some of these foundational scriptures that it becomes a part of the DNA of your spiritual life so that you're not just learning it, you're living it. Bible says we're not just to be hearers of God's word, but what? Doers of God's word. And sometimes that takes repetition. Sometimes it takes that, that being embedded into our souls on a regular basis. So Paul says, I'm repeating this because it's a safeguard for you. You know the word of God is a safeguard? It keeps us safe. It's, it's, it's amazing. As you get God's word in your heart, it puts a fortress in your heart. How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping according to that word? That word have I treasured in my heart that it might not sin against thee. So here's what he's repeating. Verse, verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Now he had told them already about false teachers. And now he's saying, hey, beware of these guys. Here's what's happening. In that culture, in the New Testament time, Paul would start a church. He'd get it rolling like the church in Philippi. And then he'd move on his missionary journey to the next region. He'd start a church in. And these false teachers would come in right behind Paul. They were Judaizers. And they would say, okay, Paul said you're saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But if you really want to really be saved, if you really want to have God in your life, then you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law. You need to go back to Moses. And Paul just, man, this, these guys were, talk about a thorn in the flesh. These guys drove Paul crazy because they were polluting the simple gospel of grace. So we'll, we'll, look at Paul. Paul doesn't mince words here. What does he call them? Dogs. Now, I'm, I'm sorry if you're a dog lover here today. <laughs> I'm a dog lover too. I have, we have a beautiful lab that I, I take swimming every day. But, but in that culture, dogs were, were scavengers. They attacked people. They weren't pets. They were like wolves today. Paul says, these guys are like ravenous wolves. They're attacking the sheep. And not only that, they're, they're the false circumcision. What that means here, they were, they were telling people to be saved, you got to be circumcised. One version says they're, they're called the mutilators. Paul, and by, by the way, can you imagine, guys, you, you get saved in your 20s or 30s, and then this false teacher saying, okay, now you got to get circumcised. Ouch. That would be a tough sell for the gospel, too, wouldn't it? Okay, you can, you'd be saved by grace, but now you also got to get cut. And that's what these guys are coming in and telling these, these Christians that were new Christians. Paul says they're polluting my gospel of grace. They're dogs. They're the false circumcision and they're evil workers. Why? Because they're adding works to salvation. But notice what Paul says in verse 3. But we are the true circumcision who do what? We worship in what? The Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's the next principle for walking with, with Christ and knowing Christ. Put no confidence in your flesh. Make your relationship with God and Christ not about how good you are or your performance or trying to be a good person because that, that will never earn you relationship with Christ. What it will do is it will make you a Pharisee where you start becoming legalistic and you start making your rules your basis for your relationship with Christ. And then what happens, that legalism will drive you to start being not only self-righteous, but it will start making you someone that is condemning and critical of other people if they don't keep your rules. Be careful of this. 
put no confidence in flesh. Now, does that mean that we don't have righteousness in our life? No. Just the opposite. After we're saved by grace, it says, For by grace we're saved through faith, that not ourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works, and no one should boast. The very next verse says, For we are his workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand, and we should walk in them. But it's a response to grace, and it doesn't earn us favor with God. Grace is undeserved merit and favor that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Put no confidence in the flesh. Don't do that. That will drive you away from Christ rather than close. Notice, if you look at the Gospels, the people that Jesus was most critical of were the Pharisees and religious leaders that were into all this legalism and dumping condemnation and legalism and rule-keeping on, on, on God's people. And Jesus went after them and said, No! You guys are, you guys are, he called them some names, you know, brood of vipers, and he had all foxes, and he he had names for them also. Be careful with legalism. This is a, this weighs heavy on my heart sometimes too, because you know, I had a dad that was raised with some legalism. Went to a Christian grade school, Christian high school. He went to Christian college, Wheaton College in the 1950s. But at that time, the Wheaton College, where he went to, uh, was very legalistic. And before you could go for your semester, every semester he had to sign a contract that said, as a Wheaton College student, you will not play cards, you will not go to movies, and you will not dance. And they had to sign that contract. You know what these college students would do? They would sign the contract, and they'd go to movies, they'd dance, and they'd play cards. And it was just hypocrisy. And my dad, after four years of that, just it drove him to the point that he wanted nothing to do with it. Then he went to a Big Ten university for an MBA and got involved with a fraternity, and the party was on because he didn't see the truth of Christianity. What is true Christianity according to verse 3? It's not about putting confidence in the flesh. It's worshiping God in the Spirit and then trusting Christ to glory in Christ, glory in the cross and not in your works. And so part of knowing Christ is putting our stock in grace and trusting grace for not our performance in our works. Amen? Don't get stuck in legalism. It'll, it'll cause you to be further away from Christ rather than closer to Christ. Now, Paul's going to use deductive reasoning in this. And he's saying, if anybody should trust in their works, it should have been me. Look what he says in verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more... I was circumcised the eighth day. Every good Jew, eight days after they were born, they would be circumcised. It was an act of dedication, of cutting away the flesh in order to consecrate your life as a child to, to Christ or to God. I also, he says, not only that, he says, I was not only circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, but I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the elite tribes. It was where the first king, King Saul, was from. It was one of the tribes that stayed true to Judah when, the, when the Israel split. Paul says, I was from, from the tribe of Benjamin, this elite tribe. Not only that, Saul was his original name. He was named after the first king who came from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul. And it also says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What that means is Saul, before he came to Christ, didn't give in to the Hellenistic culture. He didn't give in to the Greek culture. Many of the Jews at that time were starting to dress like Greeks. They were speaking the Greek language. Paul said, I stayed a Hebrew. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he also said, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. What is a Pharisee? Pharisees were the top religious leaders of Israel that, of that time. They were, they were the conservative group that studied the law to the point that the Pharisees memorized the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. They memorized every verse. Genesis, 
Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had every verse in the Torah memorized. That's how much Paul was into the law. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. He persecuted the church because the church said it was grace through faith in Christ. And Paul said, we're going to stop this out because they're going against my law. And as to the righteousness which found the law, I was found blameless. Paul said, I kept the law to the T. If anybody should trust in their works, it should be me. But notice what he says in these next two verses, great verses. Paul says this, verse eight, 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss. In view of notice, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I might what? Gain Christ. Oh, that's wonderful. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, compared to the surpassing value of, of Christ, I count all the other stuff, my religious standing as a Pharisee, my heritage as a Jew, all the works I did and following the law of blameless, I count all that stuff as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And not only that, in gaining Christ, I count all that stuff I took so much pride in, I count that now as rubbish. Now that's a kind translation. You know what it literally is translated? Dung. Literally translated, I'll get even more literal, manure. I'd give you some other words, but I ain't going there. <laughs> Do you see what he's saying? Compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, all that other stuff's manure. Here's the next principle for knowing Christ. You want to know Christ? Prioritize knowing Christ in your life as more important than anything else in your life. Do that. Say, I'm going to follow the first of the Ten Commandments and have no other gods I'm going to make Jesus Christ the most important thing in my life. And here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. When you do that, when you put your relationship with Christ foremost and first in your life and say nothing compares to the surpassing value knowing Christ, your life will be at, at its best. You'll be firing all eight cylinders, and you're going to have a blessed life. Why, why, how do I know that? Matthew 6.33 is the promise. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and what? All other things will be added unto you. I love Psalm 37. It's very similar to Matthew 6, It says in Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness. Here's a great verse. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. He'll do it. When you put Christ first, you delight yourself in him all the other stuff in life will be taken care of. You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Man, he is just going to bless and add everything else you know, need in your life. You know, I, I have four kids that are all grown up on me. And, they, you know, we've had these weddings, and it's, off, all, all, it's awesome. They're, they're all doing well. They all walk with Christ. But I specifically pray for all four of my grown-up kids to this day in my quiet times. I pray for them. That's Matthew 6.33. Lord, would you, would you be with my kids when you help them to seek first your kingdom, Lord, and your righteousness so you can add all things onto the hoppy kids as they grow older? You know why I pray that for them? Because I know their marriages will be blessed if they're putting Christ first. That triangle principle is so true. The closer they stay in their relationship with Christ, the closer they're going to have in their relationship as husbands and wives. 
I know their works can be blessed. I know that as they put Christ first and seek first his kingdom and righteousness, God will take care of this work thing, and they'll be blessed in what they do in their work. I know as they seek first God's kingdom and righteousness and put their relationship with Christ first, their parenting will bless, their homes will be blessed, their personal lives will be blessed, their strength and, and their courage will be there because they're putting Christ first. And so church, we gotta, we got to prioritize this thing because there's so many distractions in this world where we don't put Christ first. But as we put him first, we seek first his kingdom, and knowing him is the priority of our life. Everything else will be taken care of. God will bless. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's, let's keep going now in Philippians chapter 3. After he talks about the surpassing value of knowing Christ, he says, and that I might be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith, in Christ, the righteousness that which comes from God on the basis of what? Faith. Here's the next principle on knowing Christ he's talking about. It's, it's called, uh, theologians call it imputed righteousness. Here's what happens. The Bible says very clearly, the moment you put a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you're given, as this verse talks about, righteousness. You're given a positional righteousness imputed into your life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states that. It says, God made him, Christ, who, uh, God made him who knew no sin, Christ, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the what? Righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us this, that, that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And here's how it works. The moment you put a saving faith in Jesus Christ, the moment you admit you're a sinner, you trust Christ to be your Savior and your Lord, you receive him into your life, you're imputed righteousness. You're given the righteousness of Christ. What happens is Christ takes your sin, nails it to the cross, and then he clothes you with his righteousness. So that when you face a holy God one day, because you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, What's going to happen is God's not going to see your sin. He's going to see the righteousness of Christ. And that's why Jesus said on the cross when he was dying for your sin, it is finished, literally translated, to die, paid in full. And you need to have that, in, that positional righteousness in your theology, in your mind, in your relationship with Christ, because otherwise you're going to try to work for your standing with God and your knowledge of Christ. It's not about you. It's not about what you do. It's about what's been done on the cross for your sins. And when Jesus said, it is finished, it is. Paid in full. That's why Isaiah 118 says, even though your sin is a scarlet, you're what? White as snow. Now many of you Southerners don't know much about snow. It amazes me. We get a half an inch of snow and all the, all the school is closed. They're like, whoa! But I grew up with snow. I grew up in Chicago. where I remember in 1967, we had the blizzard of the century, and we had three feet of snow in one blizzard. It was awesome. We had tunnels in our front yard going through the tunnels and stuff. But I'm, the one thing I miss about up north a little bit is when you get these blizzards, everything would be dirty, the streets would be dirty and stuff, and then we'd get a foot of snow, and it was all white. You look out the window after the blizzard, and it's, everything was just beautiful, white, pure. That's the picture of Scripture. When you came to Christ, you were dirty. You were a sinner. 
But now Christ, through the blood of Christ, has washed you of your sin, and you're white. Even though your sin is in scarlet, you're white as snow, man. And not only that, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed your sin from your life. We need that in place positionally in our life, in our theology, in our relationship with Christ. It will help us knowing Christ, knowing, knowing that when I put faith in Christ, I was made white as snow, and I have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus right now through my faith in Jesus Christ. Hmm. I remember when I came to Christ in 1978, February, my young life leader's station wagon. It was snowing, by the way. There's snow, that's just symbolic to me. There's snow coming down as I admitted my sin and received Christ and opened my heart to Jesus. I remember sitting in that snowy day in a station wagon. And I remember he had, that, he had this napkin, and he had, he had on the napkin, he had, he had drawn a picture of a cliff. And he put me on this side of the cliff and said, Sinful John. And then there was another cliff with a chasm in between, and that cliff I had on this side, Holy God. And then he drew, he explained the gospel, he drew a cross bridging the two cliffs. And he explained to me, if I just trust Christ and receive Christ, there'll be a bridge now. And sinful John will be bridged back to a holy God. And I got it for the first time. It's like the lights went on. And I just opened my heart to Christ. I'll never forget. Because it was like this burden of guilt. Ooh, just dissipated. Lifted my shoulders. And this grace just descended on my life. And it was a release, forgiveness, righteousness. And all the guilt from 17 years of running hard after the world was lifted. And I was forgiven. Never forget it. And then shortly after, I remember with a bunch of other young Christians that had just, we all got saved around the same time through this young life thing, and we all came to Christ, and we started having fellowship and going to church together and going to Bible study together and young life meetings together and stuff. And then we all decided one night, it was a Friday night, we all decided we're going to go to downtown Chicago, to Oak Street Beach, and we we're going to have a, our own little communion service on the beach. And so when somebody brought a guitar, we all brought our Bibles, and we, we didn't know what we were doing, but we went to Oak Street Beach, and we sat on the beach on the Chicago skyline, and we saw this, all the lights, and we saw the, the, the little waves coming in on Lake Michigan, and we sat there, and we sang songs. And we had stopped at the 7-Eleven and got like a loaf of Wonder Bread, and a big gallon of grape, Welch grape juice, and we all got these little paper cups, and we all passed the paper cups around. And then before having our own communion service, we sang Amazing Grace. I had sung Amazing Grace before. I'd been in Sunday school and sung Amazing Grace. And I always wor- you know, did the words and even knew the words somewhat. But, but I remember singing Amazing Grace for the first time as someone who had truly been forgiven and saved and given the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. It's amazing. I sang it and it just reverberated in my soul. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It moved me to tears. I'd never been touched by a song like that before because it reverberated in my soul that forgiveness had happened through faith in Christ. Amazing grace. Amen? should help us in our knowledge of Christ, knowing that through personal faith in Christ, we have his righteousness and forgiveness of sins. 
Now let's close it up. Two great scriptures in closing here, verses 10 and 11. He says this, that I may know him, know Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul closes it up now. It's almost like a climax here, almost like a crescendo. And he's saying, in this knowledge of Christ, my whole heart's desire is that I might just know Christ. Now the word know there in the Greek is gnosko. It means to know through experience and intimacy. It's a, it's, a, it's a parallel Greek word to the Hebrew word yada, which is Adam knew Eve. It's not talking about knowing about. It's talking about knowing through relationship, through experience, through intimacy. And what Paul says, my, life, my whole life now, is just to know experientially and intimately Jesus Christ. And not only to know him, but to know the power of his resurrection. Wow, power! Do you know when you get to know Christ, there's power? Power to change your life. If any man is in Christ, a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. Power. But you shall receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when you come to know Christ, you start entering into that power of his resurrection. I remember when I started walking with Christ, about six months in, I realized I started having these quiet times and praying. And I started realizing my life is changing. I don't, I don't talk the way I used to talk. I don't, I don't do the things I used to do. My life was changing because of the power of the resurrection through knowing Christ. But notice, not only the power of resurrection, Paul says, I want to know Christ to the point that I'm willing to even share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Wow. Paul says, I want to know Christ so badly. I want to grow in my relationship so much, I'm even willing to share in these sufferings I'm facing because of the cause of Christ. Because you know what Paul is saying there? Just like the Chinese Christians, I know that when I suffer for Christ, I'm going to grow in my relationship with Christ like never before. When have you grown spiritually? Has it been in times where you're just coasting and everything's good? Times when you grow is when the trials hit and it drives you closer to Christ. There'll be spiritual growth oftentimes as we share in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. And again, we should rejoice in that. In this short period of time we have on this earth, when the sufferings hit, drive us closer to Christ. We share in the fellowship of the sufferings. We're going to get to know Christ more through that. And notice also, he wants to be conformed to, the, to Christ's death in order that he might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying, I want to die to myself. He wants to practice Galatians 2.20 that says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus put it this way. You want to be a follower of me? If you want to be worthy of me, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me, right? And so what Paul's saying in this last point is it's very important we understand this. We need to, if we want to be growing our relationship with Christ, we need to have this desire to know him. Experientially, intimately, in a relationship. And church, let me ask this question. How do you get to know somebody? How do you really get to know somebody? You spend time with them. Spend time. And if there's only one takeaway you take away from this message this morning, get this. Every single person that's a Christian that wants to know Christ should have a time on a daily basis, I call it a quiet time, where you spend at least 10, 15 minutes reading God's Word and 10, 15 minutes just praying. Praying. That's how you get to know Christ. I remember when I started doing that, I was being a disciple by the Young Life leader, and he gave me this little scripture union 
It was called Scripture Union uh, Devotional Book. And you'd read through the entire New Testament in a year or whatever. You read a portion of the New Testament, read the devotion, and then you'd pray. And my young leader was teaching me to pray Acts, which is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I remember I started doing that. I remember one, I remember one specific Saturday, I was on my bed in my, uh, at my house where I grew up in Chicago, at, and I had the Bible on my chest, and then I had the Scripture Union book on top of that, and I was praying through Acts, and I was praying the ACTS, and my dad walked in on Saturday, and he saw me just with the Bible on my chest, and he said, Chip! I said, yeah, and he goes, what are you doing? I said, Dad, I'm praying. And I heard my dad just say, oh boy, we got a Jesus freak now on our hands. And I said, yep, you do. <laughs> and I said, yep, I'm just going to be a Jesus freak the rest of my life because I want to get to know him. I really do. And again, as I started having those quiet times and having that personal quiet time with the Lord, my life changed because the power of his resurrection started invading my life, started changing me from the inside out. Hey, if you're here this morning and you're a believer and you've trusted Christ and you've asked him into your heart and you're not having a quiet time, this week would be a good week to start. Oh, I'm too busy, John. You don't know what's going on at work. I got all this stuff going on. Hey, we're all busy. If you're too busy, wake up 20 minutes earlier and set the alarm 20 minutes earlier. Spend 10 minutes in the Word, 10 minutes in prayer, and then get off to your day. Or if you're more of a night person, hey, go, go, go turn the TV off 20 minutes earlier. Spend some time before you go to bed in the Word and in prayer. It'll bless you. It really will. You know what? Um, Heidi and I, we have this little reading room on the second floor. You've heard me talk about it before. It's right off our, our bedrooms. And uh, it's a reading room that just, that's, my, that's our place. Favorite room in the house. And what we have there is we have two recliners. We have Bibles. We have books. We have a whole, whole wall of books up there too. And every, every single morning and every single night, we spend time in that reading room. And you know, these last five years, I've had some issues. I've had some health issues. I've had some things that have been tough, some trials. And you know what? When all these trials started hitting, that drove me even more to say, Heidi, we're going we're gonna to wake up in the morning reading our Bibles. We're going to end our day reading our Bibles. And we do that. We spend time in the reading room. As soon as we get up in the morning, we're in that reading room. We're reading the Word, and we're having a quiet time. And then at nighttime, we don't go to bed at night until we spend some time in that reading room we spend some time in the Word. And then we have devotions together as a couple. And you don't know, church, how much that's helped me the last five years. But amazing how much it helps to just spend time beginning your day and ending your day in God's Word and prayer. It's, it's a strong fortress you can run into, and it will help you. And so if there's any takeaway I want you to get from today, if you're not having a quiet time, start having one. It can be simple, too. Just read a chapter of the New Testament if you need to. And just read a chapter of the New Testament and then pray for 10 minutes after you have that time. But have that time. And you'll grow in your knowledge, in your grace, in your understanding of Christ. You've got to prioritize it, though, because we're all busy. We've all got stuff we've got to do. We've got places to go and people to see, and you need to prioritize it if you're going to have that time. And I might, if you want extra credit, do what we do. Do it in the morning and night because it will help you really well. So five things. Five things that will help you grow in your knowledge of Christ. Number one, first thing we saw today is find joy in your relationship with Christ, not your circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Number two, put no confidence in what? The flesh of your works. Glory in Christ in the cross. 
put in glory and worship him in spirit. And don't try to work your way into your relationship with Christ. That's legalism. Number three, prioritize your relationship with Christ and make nothing more important than knowing Jesus. There's nothing that compares to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Number four, trust in the righteousness that you have through faith in Christ. You've been given his righteousness. You have right standing based on your faith in Jesus Christ. And number five, close with this, grow in your relationship with Christ in the power of his resurrection through having a time on a daily basis where you spend time, just spend time with him. An amazing thing. He wants to spend time with you. He wants you to only, not only get to know him, he wants to get to know you in a personal relationship. That's how much Jesus loves you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much, God, for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We thank you that your word helps us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Father, help us to be people that are rejoicing in you always, God. Help us to find our joy in our personal relationship with Jesus. Make that, help us to be people that are rejoicing in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Help us to be people, too, that aren't putting confidence in our works, Lord. Help us to put confidence in the cross and what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. I pray, too, though, that we be people that are prioritizing and saying along with the Apostle Paul that nothing compares to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And, Lord, help us to trust in the righteousness that we have through faith in Christ, too. Our standing with you is not based on our works. It's based by, uh, by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. And, Lord, help us to be people that say along with Paul, too, that we want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and even be willing to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, God. I pray for anybody that might be here this morning right now that's going through some trials, some suffering, Lord. I pray that it would be like those Chinese Christians that they might say, may these, may these trials be like nails that drive me closer in my relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would help us to be a church that continues to press into a deeper relationship with you, Jesus. Help us to be uh, a people that desire, as the psalmist said, as the deer panteth for the water brook, so our soul pants for thee, O God. We want to meet with you on a regular basis, the living God. Thank you, Father, that as we meet with you, as we put you first in our lives, you're going to add all things unto us. As we delight ourselves in you, Lord, you're going to give us the desires of our heart. Our best lives will be lived in a personal relationship, intimacy, experiential relationship with you, God. Thank you that you want to know us, Lord, and you want us to know you. Father, I just thank you again for as we get into your word and as we spend time, just like we did today, we're growing in our knowledge of you and the power of your resurrection in our lives. Help us this week to make some changes if necessary. Help us to prioritize, put some time, just spending time with you even this week, Lord. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen, church.